Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am on the line with Stephen Odaibo. Stephen is the founder, CEO, and chief software architect at Retina AI. Stephen, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Uh, Thanks so much, Sam. It's such an honor to be on the show here with you. It's great to have you on the show. So you are uh, an MD, a medical doctor, in addition to having a background in math and science or math and computer science. Can you elaborate a bit on your your background and how you kind of made your way into working on artificial intelligence? Yeah, most certainly. You know, as you said, I'm a physician, I'm an ophthalmologist. Uh, a retina specialist, computer scientist, mathematician, and a full stack AI engineer. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, it all, it all, it's sort of been a journey that I've really enjoyed along the way. There wasn't sort of a grand plan at the beginning uh, to sort of do all of this. But yeah, I started out at University of Alabama in undergrad and I was a math major. I really enjoyed that. But the entire way I was a pre-med student, so I was med school bound. Um, and the program I was in was an NSF-funded program called the Fast Track Program. So I got a master's degree in the course of that, and uh, it was it was a phenomenal place. You know, great mentorship, um, uh, and it, it was. And I would say a little bit of a however, uh, it was uh, pure math, which uh, it's a however. It's also a great advantage, but I, I found that I, I had some work to do when I graduated. So we were in the course of the program focusing on you know abstract algebra, you know, topology and things like that. And uh, uh, I remember probably halfway through grad school, through the master's part of it, uh, looking at a friend of mine and saying, you know, where where the heck did three go and where's 15? You know, there were no more numbers. It was all, <laughs> <laughs> whatever happened to 71? You know, I haven't seen that number in so long. You know, it was all symbols. You know, you use, right. you know, the reals and the complex and so on. Um, but uh, from there, I went to medical school, went to Duke and uh, was in a MD-PhD program, uh, started out, and I, I went to the biochemistry department, worked with Bob Lefkowitz, who ended up with the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 2012. Uh, and, you know, I enjoyed the, my time in the lab. It was phenomenal. I was two years there. Uh, but somewhere in that course, I had sort of a re- uh, an awakening um, during the grad school part of my med school journey. And uh, and uh, it, it, I, 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 it became clear that I sort of wanted to continue what had started at in Alabama with the math. Huh. And it, it was clear to me that it wasn't going to happen um, with the traditional pathway in the way biology is done. Biology is done sort of like looking for a needle in a haystack. You know what What's I mean? That, in what sense? It's less systematic. I think some of that is going to change. It's the notion of there are certain people who, by virtue of their position or um, – insights and prior success, uh, judgment, whatever you want to say, are, are able to pick the problems that are interesting. And there's a lot of arbitrariness to that process and, and craft the story around it. And so, something, something about that felt uh, in, incomplete, you know, to me. I, 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 I wanted a, I wanted, now looking back, I think I wanted the era of big data where we could more systematically search for things and we can more systematically draw conclusions and have more faith in the conclusions that we draw in science. Does that speak broadly to kind of the difference between uh, 
the way we approach science generally and more of an engineering type of an approach? It's it's not even um, science, old science versus engineering, because the engineering thing has changed too, right? In the last um, five years, for example, in, in machine learning, there was the era of feature engineering, which was more along the lines of the way biology was done, is mm. you manually look for features and manually craft them, even, even design them explicitly yourself versus using an optimization type approach where you're letting the data tell its own story and you're sort of sitting back uh, as a judge as opposed to you're the script writer. Ah, oh, got it. Interesting analogy there. So anyway, I, you know, I had, I had that which coincided with a spiritual awakening as well. And I decided, you know, I have to go back to, uh, I, I, so I decided to go to the computer science department and, you know, at that point, and I switched and, um, and I started to reignite the math there with numerical analysis. And I, I had work to do because my flavor of math was pure and abstract. And here I was realizing that, um, if I was going to impact the world, you have to sort of go through the computer. And that means hard numbers. That means matrices. You know, that means matrix, matrix, multiply. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, that was a blast. You know, and I, I would say that was probably the hardest part of my journey was was getting getting into back into the game in terms of math computer because I was having to really pick up new skills as well. You know, and that was at Duke also, you know, the computer science department. Uh, I was going to get a PhD there in computer science. I I um, uh, passed the qualifying exams, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, I acquired all my skills, had a falling out with my advisor, um, and and then I moved on. At that point, I got the master's, no problem, mm-hmm. and uh, and went back to medical school. Uh, and I, but then I had just one more year to finish med school, uh, finished that, and and then stayed at Duke for my intern year. Uh, and, uh, and by then I was back in the game, you know, clinically went back, went to Howard for my ophthalmology residency, uh, which was a lot of fun. At that point I was already committed, right? I was already, I already knew that I have to keep doing this math thing. You know, I've paid enough of a price to where <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was never going to, I was never going to let it go. Uh, and so even during the course of my residency, I, I wrote a book on quantum mechanics, for instance, uh, and then, uh, went to the university of Michigan for a fellowship in retina. And I, I loved Michigan, you know, I visited an arbor. Uh, it was a really intellectual Mecca was the way that I saw it. And there was something really pure about the place in terms of what people at least aspired to. Um, sort of a, they, they really they really took, I felt that they really took um, uh, academic pursuit as a primary gain as opposed to something for a secondary gain for recognition or money or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the day, we're all human, you know, and there's always that going on, right? There's always the politics, so there's always stuff, you know. But I felt Michigan stood out in terms of its uh, its uh, the genuineness of its commitment, and so I, I it was my first choice, you know. And I, I could coming out of Howard, I could have gone anywhere in the country, um, so I went to Michigan as my first choice for fellowship, um, and it was really good. I wanted to stay in the ac- academy at that point, you know. But uh, um, the irony was during the course of my time there. It started to dawn on me that if I'm really going to be able to make a difference, if I'm really going to be able to use computer science, math, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do at that point. But it dawned on me that if I really was going to do that, it was sort of a real epiphany, a surprise that I I needed to sort of craft my own career. I really had to go to private practice to become a true academic 
I couldn't do it at the university because there were these programs that were set up. You know, people say you have to fit into this box, right? Mm-hmm. And there was not a a sense of, uh, and I, you know, that's just the way it is. You know, there was not a sense of, you know, go do whatever you want. <laughs> Nobody says that. Right. Nobody right, lets right. anybody do that. And I, I get it, you know. So I picked the job. I went to Iowa. I worked three days out of the week. Um, and it being private practice, you pay your, you pay your own salary. You even, you, and so it was no problem. And the rest of the time I did academics on my own. And there I wrote a book on a finite group theory, started getting more into the pure and theoretical part. I've always sort of oscillated between, um, the, uh, applied concrete real and the celestial ecclesiastic, <laughs> <laughs> The clouds, you know, I've always kind of gone between the two. And so I was all the way in the clouds, you know, when I was in Iowa and I wrote that book on finite group theory. Um, and then at that point, my brother, uh, David, David Odaibo, who is co-founder of uh, Analytical AI, you know, he was ranked 70th in the world uh, in Kaggle. Um, and so he started he started telling me because I had left grad school at that point, you know, and he started telling me that there's this thing called deep learning. <laughs> mm. I hear I was who I was basically a guy, a PhD holder in effect in computer science who finished and left the computer world in 2010. Hmm. And I had never heard the word deep learning. Right, right. And I was at Duke for that matter, right? Um, There was no such thing. You know, the whole thing about AI, so on and so forth, there was nothing like that. Machine learning was the most boring class you can think about. (laughs) <laughs> it was horrible. I mean, with like, uh, you know, mark of chains and so on. It's things that are now so exciting. The most exciting things in science were really, you know, we're really in the cover. Of, I mean, it, buried deep inside of textbooks that were gathering dust. And so anyway, my brother um, told me that this thing is so exciting what he's doing because he was in grad school at the time, you know, at the University of Alabama. I had left and then he had. He had been working. Uh, he's a year older than I am, and he had gone back to grad school. And he said he's doing deep learning. It's so exciting. He says he's doing these things, and he kept talking about it. And you know, eventually one day at uh, Christmas, uh, I was over. At, we were spending the Christmas at their place um, in in Birmingham, and um, he, he kept talking. I said, "Okay, let me take a look. What is this?" And he said, "It's something to do with images and image classification." And I said, "You know, that's what I do in my work. Like I basically look at a picture. Depending on what the picture tells me, I go." Uh, and I decide whether I'm going to stick a needle in somebody's eye, eyeball um, and uh, administer injections, uh, or I determine whether I'm going to do laser surgery on that person, all based off of the picture. And so he said, really? I said, yeah. I said, it's all the picture. The picture guides the treatment. Hmm. A- and um, and so he said, no kidding. So, so at that so point- So you have a much more, uh, the, the, the stakes involved in image classification are perhaps much more tangible for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And none, none of this was abstract at all because I'll do 40 injections in one day. You know, I'll sometimes see 50 patients a day and I'm literally running from room to room. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, so at that point I was studying for my boards, the ophthalmology boards, which that's a whole different story. We could do a whole nother uh, se- session on that, Sam. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's you know they you, they put you in a hotel room and they ask you these questions. Literally, there's there's like a bed there at somebody's hotel. You walk in and uh, they're asking you questions about on the ten different areas of the eye, and, and so ophthalmology is, is is its own thing in that way. Um, so anyway, I was studying for this exam that everybody dreads. Um, and it, I, 
I so I said, okay, let me finish. Let me knock the boards out of the way, and then I, I'll take a look at this thing. So I uh, finished my boards in 2016, uh, November, uh, and I started studying. For, I started looking. I said, okay, I'm going to look at deep learning, uh, and uh, I took a trip to Nigeria, um, which was already planned. You know, it was Christmas, and um, and that was when I first opened the book. I I looked at it. I said, let me look at this deep learning thing, and then I said, okay, very interesting. Which and then was I got the? Back. Do you remember the book? Oh, yeah, okay. Well, you know, it's actually not a book. It was uh, um, n- nobody reads books anymore. <laughs> I was I was curious if it was one of the kind of the classic books, but uh, oh, no, no. okay, got it, got it. We're speaking right. metaphorically, which is fine. <laughs> metaphorically, you got it, got it. It, it was it was the book was so to speak, the metaphoric book was the CS two thirty one course by uh, Carpathy. Ah, Andrich, that was the book. Got it. So I looked at the book and I said, "Holy smokes, this is good stuff." Uh, and then next thing, I, I pulled up a Medium article with um, uh, some Keras code in it and uh, Python. Uh, they actually had a tutorial on Python on the 231 course. And so I pulled out that 231 that tutorial. You know, uh, you know, I have a I have a grad degree in computer science. So it took me a week to pick up Python and so on. Um, and then I I ran the MNIST training mm-hmm. in the Keras. It was basically I copy pasted it into into the Jupyter Notebook. And I saw the thing, you know, numbers running. And, you know, I was like, wow, this is amazing. You know, this is fascinating. And so I wired up actual data, actual imaging data to it. And when I saw the accuracy that was coming out. Meaning clinical oh, imagery data? Clinical or imagery like data. Or like MNIST data? No, after I did the MNIST thing. Okay. Then I actually took clinical data, actual, you know, actual patients, you know, data. Uh, and I ran that. Uh, an image classifier on that. And based on the accuracy that was coming out, I was, my jaw dropped, you know, Sam, I was like, wow, okay, this is a game changer. And I'll never forget that night. In in that point, it dawned on me that uh, there's about to be a revolution that really everything is going to change. And so um, my brother and I got to talking, I launched out the company, Retina AI, you know, he helped me with it. Um, and uh, he he turned out he was involved with so much at the time. You know, he was doing his Kaggle thing. He was ranked 70th in the world on Kaggle. He was a part of two other startups. Uh, he was completing his PhD, and so he had a lot going on. So he said I should carry on on my own, you know, with it. And you know that that turned out to be a good thing. You know, it was it was challenging for me, but I had no backup, Sam. Um, so you can imagine that's really where I became a full stack AI engineer because um, I had I had left my job. You know, where where you know. In, in full disclosure, where I was probably making five or ten times what what I, I thought I, I would ever make in my life. Mm. Um, and I left that job and uh, I, 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 I left it because I thought I had a backup. I thought I had – there was the person who was going to be the CTO who was going to do all the actual hard work. <laughs> 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 you know, and I'm just going to be like, you know, a talking head, you know, no problem. I enjoy that. You know, I run around, you know, talk about what we're doing, uh, you know, connect with folks and and kind of get things moving along and, you know, talk to investors and that type of thing and go give some clinical talks. Um, but uh, here I was, you know, and I it, I had to build a product and I had to build, I put out an MVP, you know, and I had to to do all of that. And so I I had to pick up a bunch of things along the way. I So we built a mobile app. And I had to I had to pick up uh, Swift and build the iOS and then, you know, pick up uh, Kotlin and, you know, and uh, Java uh, script and, um, you know, put out the Android version of this. And I had to learn how to host models in the web, um, uh, in the cloud 
uh, how to serve and, you know, how I had to get into some details with serverless stuff as well as RESTful APIs and the like and, and uh, Docker uh, containerization and all the, all the nitty gritty stuff that I quite honestly didn't think it was even – I didn't even conceive that it was even possible for a physician to ever be doing anything like that. Um, but I was, I was sort of forced into it and, you know, I'm really thankful for that. Um, but anyway, so our company is Retina AI Health Incorporated. Um, we, I, I weathered that storm last year, and at the end of the year, started uh, talking to investors, got a few angels together, all physicians, who you know they wrote checks enough that we're gonna be we're gonna be around this year for sure, and and you know next year as well, and you know maybe forever, maybe <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, Sounds like you've definitely made the transition to startup life. Yes. Yeah. So that's sort of the short, that's a short story. And just in quick summary of what the company is, um, we are, we are using machine learning to build autonomous systems that will, that diagnose retinal diseases, as well as diagnose systemic diseases from pictures of the retina. For example, cardiovascular risk. Uh, somebody who's that guy who's playing golf and looks really healthy and is 55. And suddenly you find out that this person dropped dead of a heart attack, a massive heart attack and has a young family. Um, it turns out that we, we are coming closer to be able to accurately find out who that person is by just looking in their eyes and saying, you really need to get to a heart doctor. You really need to change your diet. You really need to be on anti-cholesterol medicines, beta blockers and the like, um, to, to prevent something like that. So it's a big market. It's a big space and it's really exciting. Can you maybe contextualize what Retina AI is doing relative to some of the other activities in the space? Uh, as you can imagine, you are paying even more attention to it than I am. And there are announcements happening constantly about folks using these particular types of images to make various predictions. Uh, DeepMind in UK had a tie-up with the uh, the NHS there around using retinal images. I did an interview with uh, a Google developer who was doing some work around some of what you were just talking about, predicting cardiovascular risk factors based on these retinal fundus uh, images. Can you maybe contextualize, uh, maybe talk a little bit about kind of the broad landscape of, you know, what's happening in this space and and how uh, what you're doing fits into that? Yeah, great question, Sam. Um, you know, it's uh, it's early days and um, there's uh, the problem is so big and the potential for impact um, is so compelling that um, both large companies as well as small startups are interested uh, Google has uh, interest in this area, you know, uh, as you said, you know, DeepMind uh, was working with the is working with the NHS and um, they, you know, recently put out an image classifier with, uh, I think they said 50 different you know, retinal diseases and that um, sort of thing. You know, that's uh, it's uh, for us a standard problem. You know, we have a similar classifier with even more diseases um, that, that uh, we're about to roll out here. Microsoft is in, interested in this as well, uh, and you know has a platform that they're working on, and and Google is also working with Aravindi Hospital in India, you know, uh, looking at the issue of diabetic retinopathy screening. Uh, there are um, startups, some that are large and have raised significant amount of capital, such as IDX, uh, which is based out of Iowa City, uh, Michael Abramoff's company, that received FDA approval. 
for a device to do autonomous screening for diabetes um, and, and diabetic retinopathy. So there are a number of people involved, interested because it's such a large space in terms of uh, both the market as well as the humanitarian potential for for a real positive impact. Now, diabetes is a big focus for a lot of these companies uh, as well as for us. It, uh, For instance, the U- U.S. has about 9 or 10% of our population uh, is diabetic. And, you know, th- that number is uh, over 35 million people. And when you talk about prediabetes, there's over 86 million people. That's people who, if not diagnosed and treated, um, will develop diabetes within five years. That's 86 million people. And on a worldwide scale, it's a lot larger. It's half a billion people, you know, with diabetes. Um, and about one and a half million people die I- every year, you know, from the disease. So the real issue here is that in terms of human labor, physicians, it takes so long to train a doctor. Uh, and that's there's no hope there for us to use human power to train physicians to be able to diagnose this and to be able to – the world's population is growing much faster than we're turning out physicians. Um, and so the problem is worsening. So AI is compelling and is actually necessary um, to be able to address the the problem. And so a lot of people are working on – in this area – and we're we, there. There's competition. There's also collaboration. It's all very good. Um, for instance, at the National Medical um, Association's uh, annual meeting, which is going to be in Hawaii uh, this year, I'm going to be chairing a panel um, on on this very on on more broadly innovations in ophthalmology. But I've geared it and focused it towards diabetic retinopathy. And so we have the uh, technical lead from Google Brain Team, uh, Dale Webster, working on this diabetic retinopathy. He's going to be there um, on the panel, and uh, and that's uh, Dale Webster. And then Anusha Trivedi, is, she works in uh, Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft's office in healthcare AI, and she's the lead on that. And so uh, I invited her. She's going to be there as well. Uh, she's also working on diabetic retinopathy. And then Michael Abramoff, who's the founder of IDX, he's going to be on the panel as well. Um, and so we're, we collaborate, we're, we're looking at it, we're thinking about it. The truth of the matter is it's such an enormous problem um, that, uh, you know, it's great to share ideas and see how everybody can move forward together. And so can you maybe talk in a little bit more detail about your approach and some of the research you've published in this space and how it uh – you know, is, is everyone kind of doing the same thing applied to different data sets or are folks taking, you know, either dramatically different or, you know, different in novel ways, uh, types of approaches? Like what distinguishes the different things that are happening in the space? Right. This is great, great uh, question, Sam. So, yeah, there's a lot of commonality, a lot of similarity. Um, when everyone goes to these um, machine learning conferences, you know, there's no in terms of the actual techniques that are being used, there's nothing that's enormously novel, right? Everybody, you know, there's only there's only Python and there's only Keras and you know PyTorch and uh, um, there's you know, and there's not that many tools um, that we're using to execute the job. Approaches do differ, uh, and uh, access to data, you know, uh, differs, uh, and that's sometimes it's not always more data is not always necessarily a good thing, which is a separate topic. Um, it depends on the type of data that one has access to. And then one's understanding and knowledge of the specific domain. And so I think that's where we stand out um, because of my experience as 
uh, a physician and ophthalmologist. I'm a retina specialist, also a full stack AI engineer. And I built the entire prototype, the, our first prototype on my own end to end. I think what that does for us is it gives us a very unique perspective. We can innovate very quickly. For example, one of that, the papers that I just published uh, two weeks ago was uh, using a generative adversarial network um, to generate uh, artificial data for data augmentation. And um, I generated a certain type of scan called an OCT of the retina, and I passed it along to a few of my colleagues who are also retina specialists. And uh, I was impressed to see that um, uh, at least half of people uh, didn't get all of them right. And these are experts, you know, who look at the these images all day. Um, so w- w- there are certain differences. The smaller startups who have more integrated domain knowledge can move quicker and can innovate, you know, uh, quicker uh, in that space. And so everybody's going to have to work together. And that's what we're doing. We currently have um, we're currently in the Google Cloud uh, platform, you know, startup program. So we we get some 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 benefits from you know having access to to cloud infrastructure. And, you know that helps us. Uh, and we're currently also looking to to further some ties with some of the other larger companies to see how everybody can move forward together. So that's that's a really interesting perspective on the way these markets uh, will evolve. And I want to dive into uh, the the GANs uh, work that you've done, but but before we do that, let's linger here for a second. Uh, what strikes me as interesting is there was a period of time, maybe you know three four years ago, when everyone kind of believed that you know the that that AI was going to be totally driven by access to data and it was going to be a handful of large companies that would kind of lock up all of the data and you know thus build all of the best models and everyone else would be frozen out and i right. i think that that's changing right that perception is changing and you touched on some of the reasons why can you el- elaborate on you know what you see there yeah um Exactly. You know, people even just even just 24 months ago, people were saying, oh, wow, you know, throw in the towel. Don't worry about it. You know, Google's interested. They've they've looked at it. And so it's over. Um, And, you know, I we always said, you know, it was as people were saying that, that I was leaving my job, (laughs) you know, (laughs) 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 because I, I absolutely didn't believe it. You know, I and so one thing that I tell people is data is everywhere and data has always been everywhere. And it's it's kind of like oil, like natural gas. It's it's it really is everywhere. You know, you dig deep enough anywhere, you'll pretty you'll strike oil somewhere. Um, but it's really difficult to set up the rigs to know how to to find the oil and how to you know extract it and and uh, convert it into something useful, into gas, into fuel, into natural gas for for one's vehicle, for instance. Uh, just to jump in there, I'm not sure that's the best analogy for your position in the sense that actual exploration and extraction of oil is hugely resource intensive and is kind of the domain of the big oil companies as opposed to small. I don't know this market, so I may be totally wrong, but I'm assuming that it's, you know, that is kind of one of these things where it's kind of dominated by, you know, huge energy companies and state-owned players and things like that. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one part that the analogy doesn't quite work. Because <laughs> it's actually the opposite in the case of, uh, you know, in this uh, era where, you know, a kid in, in Nigeria or Ghana who has access to the internet uh, 
you know, and has a laptop, you know, can train a machine learning algorithm. Right. Um, so it's uh, other than that part, <laughs> you <know> the analogy. <laughs> it, it's um, so, yeah, the, the point there is that knowing the data, having domain expertise, which is what these oil companies have, um, having domain expertise and knowing what to do with data. That's actually what's very expensive. And in, in, the, in this case, it's uh, the analogy does work. We're expensive in a more general sense mm. of the word. Uh, it's hard to come by. It's so expensive that Google can't afford it, right? Um, in the sense that, and that's part of the their strategy. They recognize that, and so a lot of these big companies have venture arms that uh, look to partner or acquire uh, smaller startups um, because they that's that's where the rubber hits the road is in the domain expertise coupled with the engineering know-how uh, allows people to find meaningful insights inside of data. And, and so another comment that you made was that more data is not necessarily a good thing. And it goes against kind of the common wisdom as well in this space. Can you elaborate on that? It totally does. Yes, yes. So more data is not always a good thing. And for example, one of the reasons why, you know, uh, generative adversarial networks have been thought of as, you know, more powerful than preceding uh, generative models is because they can somehow find, somehow find um, different pockets where there's uh, enough variation inside of uh, a probability distribution of a certain data type. Um, but but they, that's, that's, that's only so true to, to a certain extent. Otherwise, what, what, what one might be getting is sort of an averaging or a blurring of, of a certain part of the data. Um, that's one example where knowing how to uh, pick the data, understanding what the implications in the various pockets of variation within a data sample mean in the real world um, is priceless. One example of where this played out is with the RSNA Kaggle competition in which um, the top 10 uh, finalists, winners, were all radiologists who have somehow along the way acquired ML skills. Uh, and there's there's no substitute, substitute for that. Um, and that's sort of always going to be the case. Another example is knowing when to halt training of an algorithm um, with your standard supervised learning type problem. Uh, you can sort of go off of your loss function. You can say that the losses drop below a certain threshold. We're going to stop. We're doing great. Um, that process is governed by the data, of course. So assuming that you had good data, you, you can safely trust your halt point. But in the case of, say, a, a, a GAN, the ultimate arbiter is still the human visual cortex. It's still a human being who understands what um, a a dog or a cat should look like because you've got these two competing algorithms that are fighting with each other and the loss itself is clearly now insufficient. And so you can't, one can't stop training again when the loss drops below a certain point because the adversariality, the push and pull that the discriminator and generator are doing to each other continues past a certain point. So you don't really know when to stop uh, and there's no real quantitative approach that we currently have for knowing when to stop training uh, these GAN algorithms. And so because adversarial examples are another way that, that make that very apparent, that you really ultimately still need 
the domain expertise. It's an enormous value um, in today in ML. And I think we're all going to, I think people are starting to get that. Um, people, the the initial big hype and excitement that computers are going to take over is starting to, to dampen. Uh, and people are starting to realize that um, the only real way forward is going to be uh, in any, is going to be domain specific and it's going to be with really integrated interdisciplinary teams and ideally people who have um, uh, detailed uh, expert level knowledge of both the ML side as well as whatever other field that they're looking to apply ML to, be it agriculture, you know, be it transportation, be it healthcare. Tell me a little bit about your experience getting up to speed with with GANs, ultimately resulting in uh, this paper you published. Oh yeah, it's uh, yeah. You know, I basically I um, I I I thought you know well this this could be interesting. It started with a theoretical question. I was you know I was giving a talk and somebody asked me in the audience. I was actually giving a talk in Nigeria, where I, I went for a data science uh, Nigeria. They invited me in January just last month. Oh, two months ago. We're already in March here, um, and uh, and somebody somebody brought up uh, whether GANs could be used for augmentation of data, and you know, and my initial inkling, I hadn't really worked with GANs at that point, um, only really a month ago, and uh, my inkling was to say no, I, I don't see it. I, I don't see a person pulling them themselves up by their own bootstraps. That it's your and your GAN model, your generative model, what it's able to generate is necessarily constrained or bounded in terms of its accuracy, in terms of its fidelity to the actual native data set, is bounded by the initial sample from that data distribution, which is your training data for the discriminator. Mm-hmm. That was my response. You know, and, you know, and, and uh, but I, I kept thinking about it, though, you know, <laughs> that was that was that correct? You know, is that true? Um, and and uh, it's it, it is, you know, I, I'm still there. And so I said, OK, let me let me play with this thing. Let me take a look at it and actual actually look at the details of how it works and what it does. Uh, and so I, I I read up on it and, you know, trained up a GAN model. Uh, and, you know, generating some data and I'm getting some real insights from, from the, that I've only been doing that over the last couple of weeks here and, uh, been learning a, a number of things about how data works and what data is, what the distributions are and so on and so forth. And that only, um, strengthens my conviction that for us to go forward in ML, um, we're going to have to understand the domain very well because there it's necessarily a heuristic field. And so, um, yes, we can come up with theories that are true to some extent, but ultimately only, only so much as they can somehow encapsulate the general properties of data. For instance, um, there's the uh, – in signals processing world, right, where one is looking at doing a sampling, if your signal has a certain character to it, you know, if it's band limited, um, then – you know that if you sample a certain way with a certain frequency, you can perfectly reconstruct that data set. You know, that type of idea, you know, the Shannon-Nyquist sampling theorem, you know, that type of idea um, can provide some guidance about what we can do within ML. But it's completely clear that, you know, 
Google, the Googles of this world would be completely outmatched by small teams of people. It could be even two or three people who have expertise in their area and are working on those problems. And that's a very exciting time in history. You mentioned this process of working with GANs, you know, beyond reinforcing the the value of domain expertise, kind of led to some insights around some of the, the core machine learning problems that you're working on. Can you elaborate on those a bit? Right, right. So I'm, I'm actually, I'm trying to, I want to write it up, uh, you know, put it on the archive. Um, some of these same type of ideas um, are some of the paradoxes are that more data is not necessarily better. You know, that's kind of a big one. It, it's um, what type of data, right? And what problem are you trying to solve? Sometimes you actually need less data of a certain type. Sometimes when you have more data, you're diluting something, uh, if, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. And, and how do you know? What, what's the, like, I mean, this is probably what the thing that you're, that you need to write up uh, or that you're kind of moving towards writing up, but like, uh, my sense is that there's, you know, a set of uh, kind of disciplines behind what you're saying that aren't really talked about a lot. Right, right. It, this field is so nascent. You know, this field of ML and data is 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 wide open. Yeah, yeah. It's totally wide open. And I think there have been certain mantras that have been just, you know, just uh, regurgitated verbatim. Um but I think that, you know, the more we look at it, the more we honestly look at it, right, um, as opposed to trying to force machine learning to fit a certain model, to fit a certain um, way of thinking. Uh, I think the more we honestly look at it, the more we'll be able to get deeper into what what the character of this thing is. It comes down to specificity, you know, what are we trying to do? You know, and how are we trying to get there? Uh, in a data set, you know, in a, in a data distribution, for instance, there would be certain features, certain characteristics within certain neighborhoods of the distribution, which would be very different from other neighborhoods. And so if you're trying to capture the essence of a certain neighborhood of the data distribution, um, you're better off sampling from that area than coming up with, you know, saying I have 10 million images, you know, of this broad, ill-defined, you know, data class, when in reality, they're truly subfamilies, multiple subfamilies within that whole area. So one has to really understand what they're doing. One has to really understand what the landscape of that data type is, be it language, be it imaging, be it a particular type of imaging, um, and then guide that. So the human visual cortex and the human experience will remain the, in my view, will remain the ultimate arbiter um, for, for at least, you know, for the next decade, who knows what's gonna happen after that. <laughs> well, Stephen, it was great chatting with you about all this stuff. I'm looking forward to, uh, following along as you start to publish some of your, uh, insights into, you know, GANs and, uh, this whole dynamic around data and domain expertise and machine learning. It's all really interesting stuff. Well, thank you so much, Sam. It's really been an honor uh, to be on your excellent show. And uh, I'm I'm looking forward to going through your entire archive. Uh, <laughs> I am. It's it's really good quality, high quality stuff. Thank you for your um, contribution to the community. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen. You're most welcome. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. 
To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.